quantum computers are definitely here to implant alien New World Order chips in your chakra and unbalance your fifth dimensional mind. And in this episode, John Skerritt and I talk all about that. Get your tinfoil hats on, ladies and gentlemen. But mostly we talk about that and why that's uh, wrong is the nice way of putting it. Take it away, me from the past. All right, so on today's episode, I have with me John Skerritt, who is a self-described code monkey at Microsoft, working on C-sharp and quantum. Uh, John, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. So uh, today, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to do some quantum myths, and we're going we're gonna to do some quantum myth busting. Um, but before we dive into some of these, could you give us a bit of your background um, what you did before quantum, how you got into quantum, that sort of stuff. Yeah, uh, so I got into quantum computing kind of as a fluke, um, almost about 15 years ago, something like that. So I took a semester off of college and I went uh, backpacking through Joshua Tree and um, Utah and Colorado. And you got a lot of time to read when you're backpacking. And I didn't have anything to read. So I was trying to figure out what I wanted to learn because I knew I'd have some free time. And I tried to pick the hardest thing I could think of, which was quantum computing. So I picked up a couple books. Um, I think uh, it was the Dancing Wooly Masters was like the first one. And then, yeah, it's a strange book from the 70s. Not, it's a little sciencey, but not very. Um, but then I picked up a couple of other like textbooks and started to kind of get into those. And then... After those three months, I kind of put it on the shelf. Um, I was a speech communications major, so not really having anything to do with science or math or anything. And then I went into the military after that. And then um, after I got out of the military, I got into coding. And it was just kind of one of those, uh, my, my buddy gave me a break and he said, uh, I know you've never coded before, but you'll smart, you're smart, you'll figure it out. And uh, I figured it out. So after a few years of doing that, hop, skipped, and jumped around, uh, ended up at Microsoft. And then this past summer, there was the uh, quantum developer workshop. And uh, I took a look at it and realized that quantum computing was like actually a thing. Like I'd read about it, but I didn't know it was something that was achievable, uh, especially by me. So I, I looked into it and I've been, I took one of those MIT uh, XPro courses and I've been kind of full tilt on quantum for the last, I don't know, nine months, year, something like that. And um, it's been really interesting coming at it from a, a software development standpoint, because I feel like a lot of people come at it from either math or physics. Uh, you know, a lot of people have research experience and, uh, and I do not. <laughs> so I learned a lot of these concepts kind of like for the first time or for the first time in 15, 20 years. So it's, uh, it's been a journey. Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, I can I can relate to the like learning about quantum computing and then having a gap and sort of like coming back to it. Um, it's a bit of my story, which I won't go into that right now. Um, but since you've come from a sort of non-traditional background with this no research, were there any resources? Because that's one of the main questions I get asked by people is like, what resources can I use to learn this if I am not like eight years into university? Um, are there any good ones that you would recommend? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you're YouTube, just in general, um, I really like, I always get this mixed up. It's three, three brown, one blue. 
Three blue, one brown. Three blue, one brown. See, I had a 50-50 shot and I blew it. <laughs> um, yeah, three blue, one brown. Uh, I like that a lot. Uh, there's a couple of other playlists that I've gone through that really help out. But really, if you just kind of search for what you're looking for on YouTube, chances are there's somebody that'll explain it to you in a way that you can understand. Awesome. So that I really like also um, coming from Microsoft. I was introduced to the Quantum Katas um, at the beginning of my journey. And uh, the Microsoft Quantum Katas, they kind of take you through the beginnings of things in Python, and then you learn Q Sharp for the rest of it. But I think conceptually, it really helps out. Super cool. Yeah, and, and I will have some links to those in the show notes. Um, but now we can we can jump into doing some quantum myth busting if you're ready. Yeah, yeah, I think so. All right, let's do this. So I've got I've got a list here of some of the ones that I have I've heard before. Um, if you have any any others that um, you know of, uh, both you, John, and you, the listener, um, go ahead and let me know. Um, so the first one here is that quantum computers are just like classical computers, but faster for whatever reason. Uh, John, what's wrong with that? Uh, a lot, I think, <laughs> in fact. Um, so first off, I'm not going to say not at all, but not really. Uh, the first thing you have to take into account is um, algorithmic complexity evaluation, right? Like with the evaluation of complexity, you pretty much have a curve. And as the problem size increases, that curve moves upward at a certain rate. And at a certain point, the curve of a quantum solution intersects with the curve of a classical solution. And then you're able to say that, you know, below a problem size of approximately N, a classical solution is better. And above N, a quantum solution is better. And the question is like, you know, what is that problem size, right? Like, like what is N? And that all depends on the algorithm. Um, and so I, I think the best use case for quantum computers is big compute problems on small data. And that's, that's really that's kind of due to a few factors. Uh, so first off, you've got the hardware to think about. So clock speeds for classical computers are in like the gigahertz now, and that puts cycle times uh, in the nanosecond range. I think I'm doing the math right. Um, we're able to run some algorithms on specialized hardware like ASICs, for example, like application-specific circuits, and then uh, FPGAs, field programmable gate arrays. And these ICs can run stuff like really, really fast. Um, so I'm not a physicist, but... I'm vaguely aware that what you might call clock speed on a quantum computer is related to the T1 time or how quickly a certain type of qubit can go from zero to one. And I think those cycle times are generally around the microsecond range. Please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, which basically makes them an order of magnitude slower than the classical equivalent. So there you're already kind of operating at a disadvantage on the quantum side. And then you've also got other quantum limits as well, like dephasing and coherence times to think about. Like you don't have to worry about that with a classical computer, um, as well as the fact that quantum computing is non-deterministic, right? So you might get out different answers each time. And that means that you have to run the algorithm many times in order to get a definitive answer with any statistical probability. And then... I mean, finally, like in a in a business sense, you kind of have a drop dead time too, right? Uh, like the time after which an answer no longer matters. Since we're since we talk about hype, I can use kind of Shor's algorithm as an example. Uh, let's say you're like some nation state and you're trying to break the encryption of an enemy or something like that, right? Like you know 
already that something's going down in the next two weeks, let's say, and you're hoping to capture an enemy's encrypted communication and break it so that you can figure out what's going to happen. Well, your algorithm be able to better be able to deliver like a definitive answer within those two weeks. Otherwise, it's obsolete, uh, you know, no value. So I think kind of all of that adds up to the fact that a quantum algorithm has to be a whole lot faster than a classical one in order to provide any value. Yeah. So this is this is really interesting because you kind of went at it a different way than I would, I think, um, because how I would I, how I would take this is like. Well, no. So there's there's different physics going on, right? It's a whole new mode of computation. Um, but what's interesting about what you said is it's a really good point because, like, if it was just a faster classical computer, then like you said, with this curve, rather than there being that intersection point, the intersection point would be at like the the origin zero use cases, and then the quantum computer would be totally above, right? And it doesn't matter how big the problem size is, the quantum computer is always better, which which is not what we see, right? That's totally not the case. So I think that that's a really good point. Yeah. And I mean, plus you have to think about the data load times as well, yeah. right? I mean, if you've already got your data in, um, you know, on a hard drive, right? It's, it's really easy to kind of compute on that, or you've got it, you know, in some fast RAM memory, something like that really easy to compute on that. But when you have to construct a quantum superposition for each time you want to run an algorithm, you've got data load times as well. So you've got that kind of um, that static time that you have to take into account. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that that's a big problem because a lot of our like um, uh, more far term fully quantum algorithms uh, assume that you have access to quantum RAM, which is not necessarily that um, realistic. So. Yeah. 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 I want to put my, uh, my SSD in quantum superposition too, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, unless you've got anything else to add for, for this myth, we can, we can go on to number two. No, no. All right, let's do it. Um, number two, uh, is that quantum computing will let you time travel. Um, and I think we have like Avengers Endgame to thank for this because they talk about like, we're use, we're solving the quantum manifold, and we're going to be able to time travel. And uh, it it's not what happens, but yeah, go ahead. Why is that wrong? Uh, no, absolutely not. I would think that um, quantum computing lets you time travel. See, you went end game. I'm thinking more uh, Back to the Future. Like I need a DeLorean and a flux capacitor. <laughs> so just a factor of age, I think there. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, there's there's some interesting things that are like quantum adjacent that I feel like contribute to certain myths. And I feel like the, the need to be reversible for um, quantum algorithms kind of contributes to this fact that like, oh, we're computing forward. So if everything's reversible, we can compute backwards too. But you're just like reversing. It's just like if you walk backwards in the same direction that you walk forwards, it doesn't mean you're actually going backwards. You're just going the same way in reverse. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like saying that the fact that your calculator can uh, multiply by four and then divide by four means it can travel back in time too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the the reversible computation part definitely, I think, lends itself to this like time travel idea, um, but also just uh, the fact that people hear quantum and they think like crazy futuristic technology 
therefore it'll allow us to do these these crazy things we haven't even thought of which i think i i might i might share some of the blame i'd like to think myself (laughs) important enough to share some of the blame for this because like yeah quantum computing probably will like enable brand new use cases that we never even thought of um but time travel being one of those i'm i'm uh i'm skeptical of (laughs) yeah yeah you and me both um (laughs) Microsoft talks a lot about um, you know solving planet scale challenges using quantum computing. And that's one of the things that really brought me into uh, into the fold again, uh, because it, I feel like everybody that uh, that writes code we love problem solving, right? And we love to solve problems that have impact in the world, you know, or our customers or wherever your 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 focus, your scope is. But um, but yeah, being able to you know enable other people to, I don't know, find new materials or new catalysts that enable, I don't know, you know, certain processes to happen, like pulling carbon out of the air or something like that just sounds, that sounds so cool. It's something so cool to be a part of like that. Just, it gets me psyched. Yeah, totally. And maybe more, more sciencey than the, like the psychological aspect of this is I know that there have in the past been papers talking about like the fact that um, you send uh, like the double slit experiment, you send electron and it, it hits and it, it knows where it is. um, But if you block it, it will uh, not give the interference patterns. Um, There have been like studies in the past, and I don't know how legit these are claiming that the electron like travels back in time to know which one it does. So I think maybe, maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, if people listening to this know know more than me about whether that is pseudoscience or actually real, um, I'd love to hear about it. Um, but maybe maybe that has something to do with this here. I read I read something about that a while ago too. It was uh, something on time travel. I don't know how sciencey it was because I, I I just don't know. I don't have the experience. But it was saying that if you were to go back in time and alter events, that the universe would conspire to make those events like make sense and rational within the flow of time. I thought it was always a very uh, interesting, very, uh, you know, uh, out there and irrational thing to believe, but it's so cool to think that the universe would conspire to do something. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I've heard of this too. If uh, we can take a quick digression away from quantum into time travel, the idea is like um, time is like a river, right? And if you go back in time, um, and every everything you throw into the river is like throwing a rock into the river. And you might divert the flow a little bit, but the river will sort of keep moving. You'll make ripples, but it sort of continues going to the same place. It's an interesting idea, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think it has to do with quantum computing. <laughs> nah. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next one. Um, myth number three is that quantum computing uh, taps into another dimension in order to do calculations faster. That sounds really cool. I think it's one of those things that's also um, kind of quantum adjacent as well uh, because of the whole like many worlds theory, right? So, I mean, the idea is that, you know, for any decision that you make or thing that happens, right? Like you turn left instead of right, or, you know, you roll, I think the show community did this thing where they roll some dice, right? And there's (laughs) six different timelines, right? Exactly. (laughs) That spawn out of, out of this dice rolling, right? So these alternate universes that spawn from this moment in time where the events occurred. 
So there's there's kind of this uh, analogy that one could you know try to make between quantum superposition maybe and like these alternate universes, some kind of a entangled mess or something. But uh, I mean, there's no merit to it at all. But the fact that there's some kind of reasonable science that's kind of adjacent to the argument just makes it that much easier to swallow if you're only you know skimming headlines and making assumptions. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that this one might actually have a little bit of merit to it. And the reason I say this is because if you look at a block sphere, right? Um, so a standard bit can be shown on a block sphere. Oh, awesome. You've got one. Right here. <laughs> I have one made it out of a Christmas ornament. <laughs> nice, right? So a standard bit can be, you know, top or bottom, zero or one on this block sphere. But, and, and that's almost like, you know, a, a one-dimensional thing if you ignore all the points between but then this qubit can be anywhere on the block sphere. Um, and that is sort of opening up a new dimension um, or two of different places that you can you can have this uh, like computational space, this new Hilbert space. Um, so it is it's almost like it's an it's it's the wrong sort of dimension, right? Yeah, <laughs> that people are thinking of like community darkest timeline dimension when they should be thinking like, the third dimension on uh, uh, a graph. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, right, because in, in math, I mean, you can have, you know, four or five n-dimensional matrices that you can, you know, compute using. And even though you can't visualize that, it's still like mathematically true. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so we're rating this one interesting, close to true, but not quite. <laughs> yep. Um, okay, number four is that qubits are zero and one at the same time. Therefore, they try every single possible solution and only return the correct answer. So for like Grover's search algorithm, it looks over all of the possible different locations and uh, in the superposition and then only returns the right one. No, not how, <laughs> not how it works. Um, but it is what I need in my life, like a quantum Siri or something like yeah. that. Like, hey, qubits, do my homework for me kind of thing. Um, that'd be nice. But I mean, really, qubits are just tools in the toolbox, right? Like you can use them wisely and you can construct applications that utilize the quirkiness of quantum particles in order to you know, um, find new materials that alleviate the strain we're putting on our environment, you know, kind of go back to what we we're talking about or optimize food, food distribution methods to solve world hunger, that kind of thing. Or you could use them to play like quantum pong or like quantum battleship, right? Like whatever. But either way, you've got to write the programs and the applications. You don't just get to like shake a quantum eight ball and get an answer <laughs> to whatever question you ask. Like, I mean, if that's the way it was, I'd have a much better work-life balance, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, yep. Um, I, I actually think that uh, Scott Aronson on his blog has something like, if you take anything away from this blog whatsoever, take away the fact that quantum computers don't try every single possible solution at the same time. Like, yep, okay. If he's saying it, I'll, I'll believe him. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, so I think that this one does come from the fact that we, we have this um, standard description that people ask, what's a qubit, right? You go, well, okay, so imagine you have a bit, but it can be zero and one at the same time. And then from that, the, like, the next logical step is, oh, well, if each of those can be zero and one at the same time, then if you've got a bunch of them, 
they can be all of the answers at the same time. And then you can do your fancy math stuff and have it return only the right one. Um, which is, yeah, it's it's not exactly what happens. There are some algorithms like Shor's algorithm um, that do something similar with um, having every every bit in superposition and then doing some clever rotations to get it close to all the right answer. Um, but like you were saying earlier, you have to run this multiple times. You don't always get the right answer. Um, it's possible that you get the wrong one. And so there's this extra complexity that like, the the standard I, I feel like a lot of the standard descriptions of quantum computing just sort of fall short because it's not it's not it doesn't convey the whole um, complexity of what's going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I think that's just the, the problem with you know how we digest information, right? Because I can write you know a, a large paper and post it on the archive, and then. You know, it gets condensed down to a headline and then that headline gets repeated in a news article and then only that headline gets picked up somewhere else. So it's just about that condensing of information where, you know, we we can try our best. But like, honestly, what you just said, that's kind of how I explain things if I'm talking to the C-suite, right? Because it makes sense and I can I can explain it and kind of move on to the next topic. But if I'm talking to somebody more technical, somebody that understands, like they're not going to let me get away with that explanation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I'll, de I definitely call you on that. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, I, I do think I, I would challenge people if you're if you're in the position of trying to explain these to pe uh, these things to people, try to avoid the uh, the the easy way out of zero and one at the same time. Don't worry about it. Um, if you like, anal I love analogies. Um, if you can give analogies for these things, um, those are great. So for the like um, zero and one at the same time. Um, it's not it's not like zero and one at the same time. It's like a new new values rather than zero or one, but they're not in between zero and one. It's a little bit more complicated, but if you can wrap your head around that, you'll at least not be uh, giving wrong answers. <laughs> yeah, the analogy I like is that if a bit is like a light switch where it can be on and off, a qubit is like a dimmer switch. Where yeah. you've kind of got a range of values. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Or even like range of values is sort of linear if you've got like a like a color palette for like oh. Philips Hue, even like yeah. you've got all these different options and you can change the brightness. That may that, that works. Ooh, I like that phase. I like that. Yeah, yeah. All right. So now you have it. You can forget the zero and one at the same time. We've solved <laughs> the problem of explaining this to people. Um, we better not see any more descriptions like that. <laughs> Job done. Putting the world on notice. Yep. All right. Let's 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 move on to number. What are we on? Number five, I think. So this one is from people who think that if you are in quantum computing, you must be a super genius with three PhDs, and you have to know all the math in the world to get started with quantum computing. I, I thought that was true. I, I I don't I don't know what's wrong with this one. Yeah, I, I thought it was true too, but um, but take it from a guy, like I barely passed Calc 1 in college and then never dove any further into math for like another 15 years or so. Uh, I mean, honestly, the, yes, the, the math is important. It's good to learn. You don't need to be a super genius. Um, you can 
for I'm, I'm going to catch some flack over this, but you can more or less forget about calculus. It's really just about linear algebra for the most part. Um, but there's, and while the math is important, there's a lot of concepts that you can understand totally without the math, like um, superposition and entanglement take very little math to understand conceptually, uh, if any at all. Uh, interference kind of phase starts to get a little more into the math, but it's not absolutely necessary in order to get the concepts. Um, so my problem is that uh, like the physics, math, and computer science are still kind of very tied together at this stage. Um, so it's kind of tough to sort out like what I need to know from what I don't. Um, originally, I actually started up with a, a bottom-up approach. So I watched uh, Professor Strang's linear algebra course on YouTube, uh, bought the book, and I realized it was a slog. Um, so I realized if I was ever going to start writing quantum code, I had to take this top-down approach. Um, but the top-down approach comes with a lot of false sense of security as well. It's really easy to think that you understand something completely, but then something happens and all of a sudden, oh, oh that lose you. Uh, I think we're back. Okay. Um, maybe not. Maybe. Uh, technical difficulties, ladies and gentlemen, we will be right back. You were talking about uh, watching linear algebra oh, this, stuff on YouTube, starting bottom drang. up. Yeah, yeah, I, I love I love Professor Strang, but uh, the, going at it from uh, this bottom up approach that's really just it's a slog. I realized I was gonna get have to get a degree in like math and then physics before I even started writing quantum computing code. Um, so I started again and I started taking this top down approach, and it was it was really kind of a coast for a little while because it's easy to get things conceptually, but then somebody talks about uh, you know, complex numbers show up where somebody talks about like an eigenvalue or an eigenvector. And you're like, what is this? I don't know math. Um, so then you realize that like, while you might grasp things on a high level, like you really need to get into the weeds to understand why the high level kind of has the topology that it does. Um, I equate it to web development since that's what I know. Um, like there's lots of cool JavaScript frameworks. You've got like Angular, React, and Ember, and they all help you get your job done quickly. And that's fine as long as your problem constraints are within the framework. But as soon as you need to write a directive or do some custom data binding or something like that, like it really helps if you understand the JavaScript that's being executed under the covers of the framework, like at least conceptually. So, so anyway, to answer the question, I think that if you're diligent and you have good resources, and you don't get distracted from your goal by all the inevitable hype that comes with the word quantum, uh, someone could probably be pretty effective in about three months and pretty knowledgeable in 12. I mean, not me, like I'm, I'm still <laughs> learning, but somebody, somebody. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I think that it's definitely helpful, like you said, to have that conceptual understanding of more or less what's going on under the hood. Um, but that with quantum computing, you can start at a high level. You don't need to have all the math in the world. It's helpful to have that conceptual understanding of the math um, as much as you can. Um, but yeah, linear algebra is really all you need um, with a little bit of like complex numbers sprinkled in. Um, yep. And yeah, it's definitely, I would say more so you do need all of the math in the world if you want to like really contribute research papers or new algorithms to quantum computing. But if you want to um, dive into one of the major frameworks like Q-sharp or Qiskit or Circ 
and you want to start playing around with stuff, you want to start running actual code on actual quantum computers, you, you basically don't need any math for that. You need some Python understanding or C-sharp understanding, um, and, and you're good to go. Yep. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, we've got two more. Uh, we've got this. I think this one's my favorite um, because this is an actual quote that I saw online. Um, I'm, I'm not making this one up. Just copy pasted the whole thing. And I will do it in the voice that I think it goes with, which is indeed like transhumanism, artificial intelligence, new age cosmic consciousness, exploring outer space, and connecting and converging all minds via psychoactive drugs and algorithms all seem to coalesce into a quantum computing hive mind beast system, man. Um, I, I added the man at the end for, for effect. But uh, John, you want to take this one? <laughs> yes, yes. The existentialness of quantum consciosity. How do we describe the subjective nature of our life experience in scientific truthiness. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I see a lot of this too. People have like co-opted the word quantum into whatever is crunchy at the time. Like if, if somebody's got a new uh, breathwork technique or a new yoga pose, like it's always quantum something. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that just, uh, it does two things. First, I think it tries to marry what they're doing with science in order to kind of bolster its, um, uh, I don't know, uh, significance or relevance or whatever. Um, but also, I think it really it, it kind of tears down a little bit at what um, at the actual science, right? Because it's it's difficult to um, separate the, the real from the fake or the real from the hype, just generally speaking, like with people that mean well. And then when people start throwing um, adjectives everywhere, it really kind of muddies the water even more. And it makes it more difficult to understand. Like it broadens that spectrum from like a you know negative one plus one to like a negative 10, positive 10. And so then you've got uh, so much more noise to deal with in order to figure out what's going on. So I, I really hate when people co-op these, you know, these terms that are meaningful and scientific and turn them into stuff that's not candle sense or something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Ode of Ode of Quantum. Um, <laughs> right. It smells yeah. like burning metal. <laughs> uh, it smells like uh zero degrees Kelvin. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I think you're right that a lot of this is adding legitimacy. And I think another part um is that th this quote specifically was from some like, you know, crazy conspiracy theorist um blog talking about what's like what they are doing to take over the world. Um, I think probably aliens was where they were going with this. Um, yep. But a, a, a lot of this is quantum has sort of become um, like a catch-all for, like we were talking about earlier, uh, sciencey, new, exciting. Um, but new and exciting can also be new and scary. And so you see this with like people burning down 5G towers. Um, yeah. because it's, it's a new thing. And if you don't understand what's going on, it can be scary. I think that that's, that's part of why it's important to make sure that people do understand what's going on and, you know, get out there and explain this to people. Um, because the, the less 
um, ignorance there is, the less fear there is. And um, yeah, I think that some some of this like co-opting quantum for crazy conspiracy theorists just comes from, I don't understand quantum, but it's new and the you know, people at the top are working on this and therefore must be using it for nefarious purposes. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And there's this, uh, seems to be this distrust of what's, what's now being called like the scientific elite, right? Yeah. This, oh, you're, you know, too smart for all of us regular folk. And, and we're not, I mean, take it from a Marine that almost failed college uh, calculus, right? Like we can do this stuff. Like it's not, it's not the end of the world. It's, uh, it's really just the progress of science and, uh, you know, get on board in any way you can, you know, contribute to all this awesome goodness. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. And then this, this last one here is um, something that I've, I've heard of personally from, uh, we'll say more curmudgeonly people, which is that quantum computing is, it's never going to go anywhere. It's just a fad. It, people are putting all this money into it and we're not going to be able to get anything real or useful out of it. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, I hear that a lot, not just from uh, like the old guard kind of folks, but uh, some of the younger people as well. And they think that uh, there's just too many bottlenecks in the way right now that we're never going to get to quantum computing at scale. And I think there's been naysayers for basically any groundbreaking technology, you know, and that really doesn't stand in the, the path of science. The only thing that stands in the path of science is nature. So I think that we definitely have a lot of things to overcome. There's, uh, you know, physics challenges, there's engineering challenges, definitely a lot of engineering challenges, but we're going to get there, right? I mean, who could have imagined in the 1940s and 50s where computing would be today, right? I mean, everybody talks about how, you know, you've got an iPhone in your pocket or an Android phone in your pocket, and that's, you know, a bajillion times more computing power than they use to send somebody to the moon. Right. So science is going to evolve. Engineering is going to evolve. Like quantum is coming, man. Get ready for it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think not only have you seen people like naysayers in um, other fields, and actually if if people want a podcast recommendation for um, naysayers in other fields, I recommend um, the Pessimist Archive podcast, which is all about like, you know, it's archives of pessimists in the past saying this is going to tear down our society or this is never going to go anywhere. And it's it's fantastic. Um, everything from like books to bicycles. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyways, people have also been saying like naysayers for quantum computing for a long time. I was talking with someone the other day about how people like 20 years ago um, when the first like one, two qubit quantum, like controllable quantum computers were starting to come out. Like, why are people wasting their time on this? It's just like a theoretical, like a toy uh, that we're never going to get more than like, I don't know, three qubits on a chip. And here we are with uh, like, I believe IBM has 127 like in the works currently with plans for a thousand by 2023. Um, Yeah. The IBM quantum roadmap, nothing to sneeze at talking millions by the end of the decade networked, you know? Yeah. Yep. And I think I think one of the biggest testaments to um, where we are now is that we can uh, very accurately predict and then beat predictions for where we're going to be like a year or two down the road. 
um, which IBM has been doing, and I believe Honeywell as well with their quantum yeah. volume announcements that have happened, um, like more than doubling every year. Um, it's it's impressive, and it's it's definitely speeding up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and stuff is, um, bottlenecks are being relieved all the time. I was reading something, uh, was it, I think in March, March or April, where they had like a nine second coherence time between two uh, qubits. I mean, it's, there's ridiculous things that are happening to advance the uh, the science and the engineering. I mean, it seems like almost at a daily basis. If you look at like the quantum daily or something like that, I mean, new stuff happens all the time. It's It's overwhelming almost. Yeah. Yeah, um, I actually I did a podcast episode on nine second coherence time, so I'll plop yep. a link to that in the description so people can go check that out. Um, but yeah, uh, as we as we wrap up here, I've got the last three questions that I always ask my guests. First one is, what do you see as the biggest problem in quantum computing right now? Hype, hype. <laughs> I mean, it's what we're talking about now, but it's uh, it's really the hype. It's uh, it's tough to separate fact from fiction. Uh, then you add hype into it. And it only gets more difficult. I think that uh, if you eliminate some of the hype, then you can, uh, people will rely more on the science. Yeah, definitely. Uh, next one is what do you see as the biggest promise in quantum computing in the next like five to 10 years? Quantum internet. Oh, yeah. I, uh, yeah, so I, it's something that I'm, I'm very interested in. It sounds very like far offy. But uh, I was talking to some people and they were saying that uh, Singapore is actually kind of the headquarters of quantum internet right now because they've got such a, um, such a dense population and such, it's so uh, technologically advanced and they're in such a small area that it's probably one of the places that quantum internet will, will first arrive because they'll be able to keep coherence between the you know, point A and point B. So I'm interested to see where that goes. Yeah, that'll be awesome uh, when we finally do see that. And uh, where can people find out more about you and what you're working on? Oh, uh, geez, I don't I know. Honestly, you can look me up on GitHub. I'm on Twitter as at QubitW. I was going to be Qubit Wrangler, and then I got distracted, and that just became my handle. So um <laughs> So yeah, so I'm at QubitW. Um, I'm on Clubhouse from time to time on some of the physics channels trying to learn things uh, from others. I forget what my what my Clubhouse handle is. It is uh, at QBitMe, Q-B-I-T-M-E. So awesome. those are, yeah, that's my, that's my social media. Super or LinkedIn, cool. hit me up there, whatever. Yeah, um, I'll have links to those in the show notes. Uh, John, thank you for coming on the show and busting some quantum myths with me. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for, uh, for inviting me and hanging out, Ethan. It's been great. Okay, so I didn't get any questions or corrections uh, over this past week, but I did get a really nice message from Anna or Anna or Anna on LinkedIn. Not sure how to pronounce your name. I apologize. Uh, but she said, I am a quantum enthusiast. Just wanted to say that I love your podcast. You make this incredibly complicated topic way more understandable, easy, and fun. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Anna or Anna or Anna. 
Um, I, I, I tried my best, and I, I really appreciate getting nice notes like this. Makes me want to keep doing this podcast. If you want to send me a nice note, or if you want to tell me that I'm wrong about something, or ask a question, please send your questions, comments, corrections to me uh, on email, oneethanhanson at protonmail.com, or on minds at oneethanhanson. Or you can send me an Anchor voice message by getting the Anchor app and signing up and sending me a voice message. Okay, if just a couple myths are not enough for you, uh, or myths busted, not enough for you, and you want to get some more information about quantum computing, what the field is looking like today, what it looked like over the past 40 years, and where it's going in the future... I've linked in the show notes to an excellent review article by John Preskill, um, who's one of the the giants in quantum computing. He coined the term NISC, uh, Noisy Intermediate Scale Quantum. Anyways, he talks about that and a lot more in this review article. Highly recommend you go check it out. It should be pretty understandable for anyone, no matter what level of competency and understanding you are in quantum computing. And, of course, all the links to the things that John and I talked about are in the show notes as per our usual arrangement. And if you would like to support me so I can make more and better episodes, please support me on Anchor. There's a link to that in the show notes. You could also send me some crypto. I've got addresses in the show notes for that as well. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.